Hello, and welcome to the first in our second sequence of podcasts on Norman England. The first sequence was all around how the actual conquest of England happened, how William took control and how he kept control. This second sequence is about what life was like under the Normans, what it felt like and how society was organised. The key thing which helps you understand everything else is to realise that the main way that William kept control of England was through land. The whole thing is to do with landholding and lordship. When William arrived in 1066, he rewarded his mercenaries and his soldiers with land. That land had to come from the pre-existing landowners. So, who were they? Well, Anglo-Saxon society, before the conquest of 1066, could, broadly speaking, be put into one of three groups. You had the churchmen, you had the nobles, and that's the earls and the lesser nobles, and you had the workers. The workers were thanes, non-noble landowners. They were bailiffs, people who took care of the administration of hundreds and local areas. And then the peasant workers. And everybody was in this sort of heap. You've got the nobles at the top who do the fighting and who are in charge of the administration of the kingdom. You've got the workers underneath them who do all the actual work, but some of those are landowners. It is possible to have small amounts of social mobility. People can move between these groups. It's quite rare, but it does happen. Then comes the conquest. Now, at first, William's intention is to keep as many of the English earls in position as he can. And the reason for this is really quite simple. It makes his life a lot easier. If he has in position people who know how to run these areas, people who know how these shires are organised, it requires less work from him, it requires less management, and it requires less leadership. Remember, William does not necessarily see this as a conquest. He sees himself as the rightful king of England. He doesn't necessarily want to remake the country in his image. He's just intending to come in and claim the throne. But that doesn't happen. Why? There's two answers to this. Answer number one is the easy one. And answer number two is the more complex one. Answer number one is very simple. William wants to keep the English earls in position. So, uh, Leofric, uh, Waltheof, Edwin, Morcar, all of these people. But he can't because they keep rebelling. By the time you hit somewhere around 1075, there's none left. All of the English earls have been replaced with Norman earls. The slightly more complex answer is one put forward by the historian Mark Morris. And what he suggests, and it seems to me quite realistic that this is what actually happened, is that William finds himself caught in a trap of his own making. He's promised land to his followers, so when he arrives he has to take some land away from the English earls in order to reward them. This makes the English earls angry and more likely to rebel. In order to put down those rebellions, William needs more military support in order to gain this, 
he has to promise land to followers. When he puts down the rebellion, he awards the land to the followers, but this land has to come from English earls, which makes them angry and makes them more likely to rebel. So William needs more land to reward more followers, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. William comes up with a way to legally dress all of this up, and you'll see it when we get to the Doomsday Survey. William does not accept that Harold is the rightful king of England. Therefore, anybody who swore to follow Harold as rightful king committed an act of treason, if you like, against the rightful king, who is William. Therefore, their lands are forfeit. So William has the legal authority, according to his understanding, to take all the land away from them and distribute it as he sees fit. Now, regardless of how it happens, and regardless of the legal idea that's put behind it, the upshot is the same. By the 1070s, there are no English earls left, except for two, uh, which we won't bother ourselves with right now. There are two small noblemen. Everybody else is a Norman. And that means that the organisation of the kingdom changes quite significantly. The new system is what is called the feudal system. And the image for this, and the one that you should be familiar with, is a triangle. At the top of the pyramid is the king, and from him flows all of the land. All of the land in the kingdom belongs to the king, but he can grant it to other people for them to make use of. So he gives somebody a grant of land in return for an oath of loyalty, the oath of fealty. They bend the knee and they swear to support him, serve him, and pay him taxes. They do homage to him. They kneel and swear the oath. In return for this oath of loyalty, he grants them land. Quite a large amount of land when you're talking about tenants-in-chief, the people who receive the land directly from the king. There are ten large tenants-in-chief who own a huge amount of land across the kingdom, between them probably around 25 to 30 percent. And then there are another 170 or so uh, barons, tenants-in-chief, who own smaller pockets of land. Each of these people then distributes land to their followers. Now, this process of granting land to people further down the social hierarchy than you is called sub-infudination. But all it basically is, is more land going down the pyramid. And at every stage, a grant of land is given to you in return for a promise of service, and a promise of money. Now this idea of money being used to replace service is what's called fiscal feudalism. You can buy your way out of doing service. What do we mean by service? Well, it depends on your social standing and who you are. If you are a knight, then your service is liable to be military. If you are a baron, then your service is liable to be raising a lot of knights and a lot of uh, peasant workers together into an army, and again, military. But in some cases, you're not able to do this. You're too old, you're injured, or you have other concerns, in which case you buy your way out through a process known as skewtage. And that is paying the money so that you do not have to perform a service. 
Now, as I say, replacing services with money is called fiscal feudalism. But in either case, it doesn't matter. The system, the process is the same. You have a pyramid and going down the pyramid from the king is land and going up the pyramid from the people at the bottom to everybody on the layer above them is service and money. The interesting thing about the introduction of this is that it completely removes the non-aristocratic landowners. The things as a social class are completely gone. That sort of middle class is gone. You are now either a lord or a peasant. And of course, there's a racial or national component to that as well. Because as we've said, all of the landholders are now Normans. And therefore, all of the peasants are Anglo-Saxon. And that's a recipe for unrest that continues to chunter away in the background over the next 20 years, 30 years, even, even up into the 1100s and 1200s. You still get that sense that the Anglo-Saxons feel slightly dispossessed. No matter how much the Normans start to think of themselves as English, there's still that slight that slight class-based divide there. And you can actually see it in the English language. You may or may not be aware of this, but the words in the English language for food when it is on the table are Norman French. Beef, pork, capon. The words for the animals when they're in the field are Anglo-Saxon. Pig, cow, chicken. And that tells you that the Anglo-Saxons are the people who are raising the animals, while the Normans are the people who are eating the animals. So bear that in mind when you're thinking about this pyramid. Everybody above the level of peasant is going to be Norman, more or less, whereas everybody below the level of knight is going to be Anglo-Saxon. One of the key parts of the oath that's sworn is the idea of protection. So the people higher up the chain protect the people lower down. This is at the absolute core of what it means to be part of the feudal system. Everybody knows their place. Everybody knows what they owe to the people above them. Everybody knows what is expected from the people below them. And you can get a good sense for what the feudal system is, what the powers of these people under the feudal system is, by looking at the people who are different, and I am referring, of course, to the marcher lords. The three marcher lords are the three barons, tenants-in-chief, that William puts in charge of the area on the Welsh border. They have to secure this area, and this area is a bigger threat to William even than the Scottish border. Because the Welsh border is wild, it's untamed, it's a place of outlaws, a place of criminals, a place of border raids. He needs to lock this down, and he does it by putting three of his most trusted lieutenants there. William Fitzosburn, Hugh d'Avrange, and Roger de Montgomery. And he gives each of them an earldom, Shrewsbury, Hereford, and Chester. And he grants them specific rights which he does not grant to anybody else in the kingdom. Unlike any of the other earls or nobles anywhere in any of the Norman fiefs, he is allowing them to raise their own army. 
He allows them to declare war off their own back. He allows them, and this is a really big deal, he allows them to build castles. And that is a risk. Giving these men a large area of land, the ability to raise their own army, the ability to build castles, create defensive areas, power bases of their own, means that he must trust them implicitly. They are, in a very real sense, his first line of protection. And again, it brings us back to that idea that the Oath of Fealty is about protection. In this case, protection down from the king, but also protection up. They are here to protect William's interests. The other things the Marcher Lords are allowed to do that other people aren't, they can hold their own courts. They can pass their own laws. They can, in effect, rule these baronies like a king. The relationship is very similar to that of William, Duke of Normandy, and the King of France. So there you have it. The overall overview of the feudal system. Remember that image of the pyramid. And coming down from the king, you have land. Passed to the tenants-in-chief, and then, through the process of sub-infudination, passed down to the knights and other nobles below them. The glue which holds this social hierarchy together is the oath of fealty. I swear to serve my liege lord and protect his interests. I will come running. I will fight when you ask me to. If I do not come running and fight when you ask me to... I will pay for the privilege of not having to do so through the process of skewtage. Fiscal feudalism, the use of money to supplement the use of service. And down at the bottom you have the peasants, whose position has not largely changed since before 1066. But what has changed is the disappearance of that middle class, that disappearance of those thanes, those non-noble landowners of Anglo-Saxon England. They are gone. Now all there are are the Norman lords, and beneath them the Anglo-Saxons. And in the next couple of episodes, we'll start to have a look at what life was like for both those Anglo-Saxon peasants down at the bottom, but also for the knights and the barons above them. We'll kick off by looking at the legal system, and then we'll actually have a look at life in a village and life in a town. Please do remember all of these details on the feudal system. It is so important that you understand this because this is the glue that holds the fabric of Norman England together. Without this, without a solid understanding of how landholding and lordship works, you cannot understand how the rest of it functions. So make sure you have nice detailed notes on it. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.